We're studying the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, and we are in chapter 27. So uh, navigate over there on your tablet or phone or open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 27. We're going to look at verses 1 through 22. The topic... Jeremiah illustrates the obedience God required of Judah and the surrounding nations by wearing a yoke to a meeting of ambassadors. The title of our message, Where There's Yoke, There's Holy Fire. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for letting us be here today, and we mean it, Lord. It's a real privilege. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us that knows you, that's been born again and has the Holy Spirit indwelling us, would understand that we are here to listen to you speak to us, whispering to us words of love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. And Lord, if anyone is here that does not know you, I pray that they would realize today that you are alive and that you still speak because by your Holy Spirit, you'll be drawing them into an understanding of the good news that though they are sinners, you who are able to save them because you died for them and you rose from the dead to offer them forgiveness and eternal life. To the backslidden, Lord, we say, come back to you. Repent and do your first works. Guide and direct us, Lord, through this text as we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Manty hose are the latest fashion accessory for men. Manty hose are, you guessed it, pantyhose for men. They've been popular in Europe for some time. No, yeah, no, no surprise there. And they're now making inroads in America. I'm not making this up. I wish I was. However, if you think only guys Arnold would call girly men wear them, you're wrong. Scuba divers have been known to wear them for extra insulation in cold water. I remember when I was a scuba diver back in my youth, this was a technique. I never did it. I, I, I'm admitting now. It's, there's, luckily, there was no YouTube or anything back then to prove it, but never wore pantyhose, but I was in cold enough water to want to a few times. Men who ride horses, men on horseback sometimes wear pantyhose to deal with chafing. The uh, first time I heard about this was from William Shatner, uh, Captain Kirk. Nobody more manly than him. He's a horseman, and I talked about how I forget which of the Star Trek movies, but he does some horse stuff in there, and um, it was when they were making the transition from the old Star Trek to the new generation Star Trek, and he talked in an interview about how he wears pantyhose, or mantyhose, I guess, uh, when he rides horses to keep from chafing. So, uh, so guys, uh, there may be some guys here this morning wearing mantyhose, but... That's between you and the Lord. <laughs> Wearing them as a fashion accessory, now this is something new. I was thinking about unusual fashion accessories because in our text, Jeremiah goes to a summit meeting of ambassadors wearing something quite unusual around his neck. You see it in verses two and three. It says, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. Send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Bonds and yokes, they were not normal accessories for ambassadors to wear to meetings. They were symbolic accessories to enhance the message that God had given Jeremiah to deliver. 
Now, Christians are described as bond servants who are to be yoked together with our master, Jesus Christ. There's that famous uh, text where Jesus said that we are to be yoked with him and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. While it may be impractical to wear bonds and yokes, we should accessorize our lives by acting like bond servants and yoke fellows. We might not wear these implements, but people can still see if we are wearing them in our activities. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your spiritual wardrobe is best accessorized by bonds and yokes. And number two, your spiritual warfare is best achieved in bonds and yokes. First of all, verses one through seven, let's look at your wardrobe. Five ambassadors were in Jerusalem having a meeting with King Zedekiah. They wanted to convince Zedekiah to ally with them against King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Jeremiah, not invited to the meeting, not officially, but he was sent with God's authority to address these delegates. And so let's begin in verse one and read verses two and three again. It says, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Jeremiah, we're told, received this message in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. If I've got the timing right, he didn't deliver this message until Zedekiah was king of Judah 15 years later. God is always speaking to you, or at least he desires to speak to you and I through his word. Some of what he tells you, what he reveals to you is for right now, it's for today, it's for what you're going through, it's what you need to hear. But some of it is just for a later day. Do you ever go to a Bible study or think, well, I didn't really get anything out of that. I'm kind of going through something specific and didn't seem like God specifically spoke to me. God is always speaking. Anytime his word is opened, it has the power to change lives, the power to save lives. It never returns void. And there are times when God is speaking to you about something that hasn't really happened yet. It hasn't really occurred yet. It's a word just to hide in your heart. And this is why it's so important, one of the reasons it's so important to be in regular fellowship, taught the word of God systematically. You can't wait until a crisis or for an opportunity to reveal itself in order to be ready. Now, God is gracious, he's merciful. A lot of times people, they're out of fellowship, they have nothing to do with the church, they haven't been in devotions and then something hits their lives and they'll call a church and get a hold of a pastor and they say, will you meet with me, will you talk with me? And, and we will, of course, we, we love doing that. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you, if you'd just been in regular fellowship, you'd be so on top of this right now. You wouldn't, you know, it would still hit, it would still be a wind, it would still be a wave, it would still knock you down, but you'd get right back up because the word of God would have been hidden in your heart. You wouldn't have to have a crash course right now in the Bible and in what God has been saying. And you probably can't go back and, and, and you know, look at those underlines in your Bible or look at those highlights or remember those words and, and now understand what they're for. Christians a lot of times come to me and say, hey, six months ago I underlined this in Zedekiah, in Zechariah. 
And I felt like God was speaking to me. I had no idea what it was. And now it, it perfectly fits what I'm going through. And so uh, s- stick with it. Have your devotion. Stay in regular fellowship. The Lord is speaking to you. I, I got to thinking too about Jeremiah. You and I are party crashers and meeting crashers. We find ourselves uninvited or invited into situations where we can share the gospel. Wherever you are, you have God's authority to announce the forgiveness of sins that is available to men through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice I said we're party crashers, not party poopers. Uh, There's a difference. Some of you uh, remember the tradition, or maybe some of your places of employment still have the tradition of an annual Christmas party. It's kind of gone the way of the dinosaur as no one can afford an annual Christmas party anymore. But there used to be annual Christmas parties and some of you still have them. And um, I remember them when I was in the title business. Uh, After I became a Christian, everybody just goes to them and gets drunk, loses their inhibitions, and tries to do all kinds of weird things. And so me and the one other Christian guy that worked at our title company, we would look forward to the annual Christmas party because we would be the only people not drunk there. And it was kind of an amazing thing. I had a gal one time, she took me aside and she said, how can you be having so much fun without being drunk? And I got to think about it, I think, you know, when I was in the world before I was a Christian, I used to think getting drunk was fun. Get drunk, pass out, crawl to a toilet, vomit, wake up the next morning with dried vomit all over you, your head pounding, take some homeopathic hangover recipe, Man, those were the days, you know? I mean, you love to vomit. Don't you love to vomit? Vomiting is one of my favorite things. I mean, don't you regularly just put your fingers down your throat so you can just upchuck all you want? I mean, those are the days. And so listen, if you can't go to your work party and not be more joyful than a drunk, there's something wrong with your Christianity. I'm not saying you have to go, maybe you don't have the liberty to go, maybe it overwhelms you or whatever. And and there are other situations, I'm just using that as an example, but you're the party crasher because people are looking at you and they're saying, you're the Christian, how do you live in this environment? This is what we do, we're in the world, we're having fun, we have no inhibitions and, and you're the one who's under these crazy rules and regulations and then they see that you're having so much more fun, you have a greater freedom and it bothers them. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. The Bible says that we can be the saver of life to those who are perishing or the saver of death, depending on where their hearts are at. So crash the party where you are and and do it with the joy of the Lord. Jeremiah literally walked in wearing bonds and a yoke and he brought with him bonds and yokes to distribute to the king and all these delegates. And he urged them in his message, put them on or at least wear them when you return home to show your own king that you are bound to the king of Israel, that uh, the, the, uh, the God of Israel is king, rather. So verse four, and command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm. I've given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all the nation shall serve him and his sons and his sons' sons till the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. 
God revealed to these ambassadors his foreign policy for the Middle East. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was going to rule over them for a period of time as God's servant. God was raising up Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, a non-believing king, to do his bidding on the earth. Now, we get to an area like this and we say of things like this, God is sovereign. And he is. God is absolutely sovereign over creation. Sovereignty, however, is an activity of God. It is not an attribute of God. For example, God is love. It is an attribute. Whenever God is acting, whenever God is speaking, whatever God is doing, it flows from his love. His sovereignty is different. He can act sovereignly over every situation and even be limited by his love. And I find that God limits his sovereignty by his love in at least three ways that we all understand to be true. Number one, he allows sin to exist in his universe. And since God is never to be thought of as the author of sin or the originator of sin, God in love must have decided that it was going to be all right for sin to exist in his universe in order to work all things together for good. But if you think God is absolute sovereignty, then you come to the terrible conclusion that God actually is the author of sin and that every sinful thing that happens, God is the cause of it. And you may think, Gene, nobody believes that. You'd be wrong. A lot of people believe that. And so God is love. And he looks at the world and he says, I'm gonna create a world where number two, I'm gonna allow men to have free will. This is another area in which God limits his sovereignty. So I'm gonna let men, mankind have free will. I'm gonna let Adam and Eve choose in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because you can't have love without choice. And God is love and he gave mankind a choice. Adam and Eve chose badly. You and I would have chosen badly. And God says, well, I can deal with that, but it's going to take several thousand years to work out this situation. And it has, but now we're close to the end of that. And then God also allows himself to be moved by prayer. He limits his sovereignty in that respect. I understand that when we pray, we are aligning our hearts with God's hearts, getting into his will. But there's plenty of examples in the Bible where God responded to prayer. He doesn't really change his mind, but he does respond to prayer. And in response to prayer, he does certain things. And so God is love and he is sovereign. And so within his love-imposed limits, God rules and when necessary, he completely overrules for his glory and to accomplish his eternal purposes in human history. And what we're studying in the book of Jeremiah is one of those times. God had for about 500 years been urging the Jews to walk with him, to give up their idolatry, to quit sinning, He'd sent prophet after prophet, pestilence after pestilence, famine after famine, and finally he said, I'm going to have to directly intervene in a more, uh, um, I'm gonna interfere in a more direct way. You're going to Babylon for 70 years and that severe discipline is gonna get us all back on track for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, Another unusual comment that caught my attention here, it's not really the most important thing, but it was interesting. Did Nebuchadnezzar really rule over wild beasts? 
Was he some kind of a beast master? That's what the text says. And if they served him, what does that mean? As I was thinking about that, I cross-referenced in the book of Daniel. Daniel says the same thing about King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, verses 37 and 38. And so there's at least two references in the Bible that say that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, ruled over wild animals. I can only conclude that God really did give Nebuchadnezzar a power of some sort to rule wild beasts. What a crazy thing that must have been. It sounds like Narnia. Could you imagine? I mean, there, I searched the internet. I looked at, I, and of course, I, you know, I don't know all these deep historical, I, I, I think somewhere, this is your assignment, I want you to search out just secular history and see if there's anywhere a reference to Nebuchadnezzar having some kind of relationship with wild beasts. But if you've seen the Narnia movies, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, I could see the Babylonian army coming and these animals coming at the same time. It's, it's crazy but it was a symbol to the other nations of the world that God had given Nebuchadnezzar dominion over the earth for a period of time. So much so, if you wondered if that was really true, you could see that he could master beasts and you would think, hey, maybe we need to get on board with what God is saying. Jeremiah literally wore bonds and a yoke to this meeting. We are to wear them spiritually. We wear them when we walk in every situation, in every role, as if we were yoked with the Lord as his bondservant. In the New Testament, the roles of husbands and wives and children and citizens and employers and employees are all described. So are the roles of men and women and leaders and laity in the church. And so whether you're in the church or in the home or in the world at large, you can find your role and the boundaries of that role and the responsibilities of that role. Now, the role of women is gonna provide a good example for us. Gals, I'm not picking on you, it's just really a good example. And you will listen and your husband won't. (laughs) A wife is to be keeper at home and help meet to her husband, very basic. A wife is more than that, a woman is more than that. It's not to say women aren't spiritual, they are incredibly spiritual, but if you're looking for two things that women are definitely told, two roles that they are definitely given, two responsibilities that they absolutely have from the point of view of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, they are to be a helpmeet and a homemaker. Yet in homes and in houses of God, those yokes are being thrown off, those bonds are being broken. Our society at large and our society within the church community is throwing off those restraints. You can't be a bondservant, you can't be a yoke fellow if you throw off your God-given, biblically revealed roles. Not if you're a woman and a wife, not if you're a man and a husband, not if you're a child, not if you're a parent, not if you're whatever you are, if you're gonna throw off the role that God has given you and the responsibilities within that, you are can't be, you are not his bondservant, you are not his yoke fellow. Now the Lord said his yoke was easy, not at all burdensome. His description of your roles and responsibilities are therefore to be understood as a blessing. The boundaries he imposes are for your good and his glory. Why do people throw off these yokes? Well, there's lots of reasons, but ultimately you feel like they are a burden. Your marriage is a burden. Your employment is a burden. There's one of these areas that, that God speaks to is a burden. I have to suggest based on the word of God that if I feel like what God is imposing upon me is a burden 
And if he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I must be in the flesh. I must be approaching it as if I needed to do something about it, as if I had no supernatural help, as if the Holy Spirit didn't live within me to make things clear and to give me a clear path. I guess what I'm saying is I'm I'm not very spiritual if I think my burden from the Lord is heavy because he said it isn't and it never can be if you and I are approaching this together in the power of the Holy Spirit. When I submit to the Lord, I might look just as weird to onlookers as Jeremiah did wearing the bonds and the yoke. We don't have to wear something to look weird to people. I know if you're a, you know, a parent raising younger children, one of the things I know you struggle with because every generation of Christian parents did, it, it does, is that your kids always feel like they're doing less, they are more restricted than all the other kids. I know some of that's just a technique that kids use. All the other kids are doing it. And then you say, well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a classic conversation. Ever since there have been bridges and parents, that's been going on. But there is a truth to, you know, your kids feeling a burden. Now, sometimes um, parents aren't infallible. They're 99.9% infallible. They're not infallible. Sometimes, sometimes parents do put burdens on their kids. But we as adults, we can't do the same thing to the Lord. We can't go to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, you know, everybody else is doing this. Everybody else is getting a divorce. Everybody else is doing whatever. Because God said, yeah, you don't understand. My burden is easy. My, or it's light, my yoke is easy. And so we don't have that same uh, frame of mind. And if we do, there's something wrong with us and not with the Lord. If I wanna be able to speak with authority for the Lord, I'm gonna have to accessorize my walk with submission to his well-intentioned, loving boundaries for my life. One final thing on this topic. A lot of times we're extra burdened because we only think, about what's going on today and tomorrow, maybe the day after that. In other words, we're, we're stuck in this life right now. You know, we're eternal beings, and what we need to be thinking about is that day that we stand before Jesus Christ, that day that he wants to reward us for the works done in our flesh as unto him. And that, to me, turns everything into an as unto the Lord kind of a proposition. Is life hard? Yes, it is. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not. And if anything, it's gonna get harder. But there's coming a day when the Lord will say to me and to you as we persevere with him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You and I walk together through those things. I filled you with my spirit. You had authority to show others what a relationship with the Lord is like. And I'm gonna reward you for it for eternity. And eternity's a long time. It's a way longer time than we're gonna live on this planet. And so think about that day and work backwards to where you are today. And if the Lord, is, if you feel burdened, then seek the Lord. Now the remaining verses of chapter 27 urge the people of these nations to surrender and submit to Babylon. If they would, they could stay in their own land. Sure, they'd have to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, but they wouldn't be overrun and exiled. They wouldn't be taken captive. Their temples wouldn't be burned and destroyed. In a very real sense, these nations would be surrendering and submitting not to Babylon, but to God, who was allowing Nebuchadnezzar to have some power on the earth. 
For us, these verses can picture submitting to God's plans for our lives, surrounded by the world with the God of this world on the prowl, remaining yoked as a bondservant gives us the victory day by day in our spiritual warfare. We never surrender or submit to the world or to the devil, but as we surrender and submit to God in a world in which the devil has been granted some limited power, our victory depends upon our being yoked bondservants. Jeremiah first addressed foreign ambassadors, beginning in verse eight. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I'm gonna punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore, don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. Historians tell us Babylon was experiencing internal strife at this time. These five nations coming to Judah thought this is the perfect opportunity to break away from Babylon while there is this internal strife and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have time to deal with it. However, God was a better foreign policy advisor. You watch these people on television who Fox News and other news agencies hire as advisors and you know, they used to be an ambassador, they used to do this. And, and some of them are smarter than others, quite honestly, but all of them are fallible. God says, no, I, I can advise you about foreign policy. Here's exactly what's gonna happen. Nebuchadnezzar is gonna put down this internal strife and he's gonna come and destroy you if you don't submit to him. So just get with the program. There are always going to be ways that seem right to us as human beings, even as Christians. If we must step outside of a boundary that God has set in order to walk in that way, then that way is the wrong way for us. Anytime we throw off God's yoke, we are making ourselves pray for the schemes of Satan. And so something God says is wrong can never be right. It sounds simple, but it, 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 it gets muddled in our deceitful hearts. Something God says is wrong can never be right. And if we say that it is, then we have thrown off a yoke because we think it's too burdensome. Jeremiah next addressed King Zedekiah. He says in verse 12, I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him and his people, and live. Why will you die, and you and your people, by the sword and famine and pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Now everybody knew that Jeremiah was the real thing, that he was the genuine prophet of the Lord. There were, however, other voices urging a different course of action. Applying this to us as yoked bondservants, I'd point out that we too have many other advisors and voices trying to influence us to be sovereign over our own little kingdoms. Every day, you and I face and feel pressures from the world and from the flesh to break away from God's dominance in our life. 
We always, you know, are, are made to think that God somehow doesn't love us because if he loved us, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Or the, the famous one now, I use it all the time, but I hear it all the time, God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy, therefore I'm going to, I have to break off this yoke. I know God says this is wrong, but he also wants me to be happy. And so that cancels out this and I do this. That's crazy. It's insane. And so we listen to the voices. Sometimes it's our own deceiving voice. Sometimes it's the voice of the world. But it all contributes to breaking away from the Lord. Now the chapter ends with Jeremiah addressing the priests and the people of Judah. Verse 16, also I spoke to the priests and to all this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. They prophesy a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? But if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem do not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts and concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon did not take when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord, then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. Now in his first assault on Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captives and certain articles from the temple. The false prophets who were telling the priests and the people that those articles would soon be returned. Babylon was going to fade out and everything was gonna get back to normal. That wasn't true. And further, if they didn't submit to Babylon, the rest of the articles in the temple would be taken as Nebuchadnezzar came to destroy the temple and their city. While you and I are submitting to the Lord as yoked bondservants, it often seems as if we're losing ground. It can seem as if the devil and those who are in his camp are enjoying victory after victory, looting us, robbing us. As long as we are on the earth in these bodies of flesh, the devil's gonna have a limited reign over the planet. He is, after all, the God of this world. That's what the Bible calls him. And the prince of the power of the air. If you're discouraged about it, or when you're discouraged about it, when it looks like the devil is winning and the world is having its way, go to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Read the end of things. Some people don't like to read the end of a book before the beginning, gives it away. I think you should start with revelation when you're a Christian. I wanna know how this is all gonna end. And the devil who seems so powerful and to hold so much sway over the nations of the world and even our great nation, when Jesus Christ comes back in his second coming after the seven years of the great tribulation, Michael the archangel grabs the devil, he chains him up and throws him into a bottomless pit where he's incarcerated for a thousand years. Later on, he's gonna get thrown into the lake of fire, what we call hell, which is a place created just for him. And so yeah, the world, it's a difficult place. Sin seems to have its sway. What's that all about? God's given mankind free will. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. They sinned against better judgment, against all logic, right in the face of God. I guess God should have what? Just wiped them out, started over? How many times do you want to start over? But God said, no, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come as a man, take your place, die in your place to decide this issue. I'm going to show you what ultimate love is because I want to have a relationship with you. It has to be a love relationship and that's how it has to happen. And I'm not God. I don't know why it has to take seven or 8,000 years to do that. But again, a day is as with the Lord a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So we think it's taking a long time. That's because we don't recognize how incredibly complex the human heart is and how very gentle and loving God is. And in the meantime, yes, terrible things happen. But the only alternative is to not have ever been born, to not exist at all. I remember watching a movie when the AIDS crisis first hit. Greg Laurie at Harvest Christian Fellowship did a, a film about AIDS. It was a witness uh, you know, testimony, an evangelistic outreach. And they had one guy in the hospital who was dying from AIDS. And I'll never forget what he said. It was really powerful. He said, I'd rather have AIDS and know Jesus Christ than not have AIDS and not know Jesus Christ. So he had come to know the Lord through that. Now, I'm not saying everybody who gets a disease or contracts AIDS, you know, that it's a, a judgment from God. That's not the point. The point is his heart was changed. And he's a guy who said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die of AIDS, but I'm, I'm glad in it because I know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And it's better to die of AIDS than to not have AIDS and live a normal, regular life and never encounter Jesus Christ and then die eternally, be separated from the Lord. So that, that's what's going on. Our victory is decided by being bound yoke servants. Let's suggest a contemporary situation where the devil seems to be gaining ground. Of course, you would expect there to be an assault against biblical marriage. Over the last few years, especially, we've been hammered on the topic of biblical marriage initiatives and you know things that are happening. Devil wants to undermine it, to destroy it, and thereby undermine and destroy societies because God, that's the first thing God did is he established a home. He didn't establish the church or the government. He said, Adam, Eve, here you go, you're married. One man, one woman for life. And so the devil wants to destroy that in every society. The prophets and diviners and dreamers and soothsayers and sorcerers of this world all combine to tell you that biblical marriage is out of date, it's old-fashioned, or it's downright wrong. Get a divorce for any reason. Marry a man if you're a man. Marry a woman if you're a woman. Marry multiple partners or don't get married at all. Just live together. Those are the prophets, the soothsayers, the voices of our society. How do we fight it? Well, respectfully, I want you to hear me on this. I'd say that initiatives and ballot measures are not the ultimate weapon to gain the victory. Notice I said ultimate. We should do all those things. We should support all those efforts, especially in a great country like ours where we have the freedom to act politically. So don't get me wrong. But hear me on this spiritually. We must embrace the understanding that the real victory is to ourselves be yoked bondservants in our marriages. Christians, for the most part, are not showing the world much when it comes to biblical marriage. We're for it but not in our own lives half the time. 
well, actually more than half the time. We too easily throw off the yoke of marriage, refusing to submit to the Lord as his bondservants. Thus, we have lost our authority to really influence society. And the greatest influence we can have is always going to be a spiritual influence. And so I say to Christians, get it together in the area of biblical marriage. Put on the yoke, don't throw it off. That's what's wrong with our society today. The classic list of weapons in our warfare is in Ephesians chapter six. There you read of the whole armor of God. Very cool. Immediately before your armor is described, there's a discussion of the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives and children and parents and employers and employees. For me, that establishes that to wield the full armor of God, you must first be wearing bonds and yokes. In other words, God said, these are your roles, these are your responsibilities. Within that, I'll give you this armor. I'll give you these weapons. But if you're not gonna do that, these weapons aren't going to be very effective. A comic book hero, Thor, was portrayed in a recent film. If you're at all familiar with the mythology or the comic book lore, or if you've seen the movie, you know Thor has a mighty weapon. It's a hammer, Thor's hammer. There's a scene early in the film in which he tries to retrieve his hammer. It's been thrown to earth, and he goes to retrieve it, but it won't budge. He can't lift it. He has no power. He has no power to wield his hammer because he's acting on his own for himself, not in submission to his role as the future king. A little bit later on, he sacrifices himself in order to save others. He learns his lesson, as it were, not to get the hammer back, but just because it's the right thing to do. And then his hammer returns to him. His power returns to him. I know it's a crude illustration, but I think you understand. We want to wield the hammer, but we don't want to make the sacrifice all the time. We want to have our own kingdom where we make our own rules about family and marriage and society, and then we say, God, now give me the full armor of God within my little kingdom, and God says, there's no power outside of my yoke. There's no power outside of my bonds. And then we have to come to him and repent and say, Lord, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And if we'll do that, his power will again be revealed in our personal lives and in our national life. Let's pray.